So this, uh, we, we have for the past nine weeks, we have covered, uh, this is week 10, nine different what we've called sacred pathways, nine different um, spiritual temperaments or ways of connecting with God. If you missed any of those individual ones, you can uh, jump online or check out the podcast or whatever. But we, we talked about the naturalist pathway, the per man, I want to be out in nature, that's when I connect with God really easily. The sensate, the one who, who really needs to have their five senses stimulated in some way, the traditionalist, the, the person who loves um, routine, liturgy, that sort of thing, the ascetic, the one who says, man, getting alone by myself, that, that might be something that really fuels my relationship with the God. The activist, the one who is, who is seeking justice, um, it, they feel like they're, they're, they're working for causes oftentimes. There's the caregiver. When I'm serving people, man, I feel like I'm serving Jesus. The enthusiast. How many of you liked Mackenzie's? I, I heard she shot off a confetti cannon last week from, from the stage of like, you seriously shot off a confetti cannon? She goes, it's the enthusiast, right? It's the one who likes to celebrate. The, the contemplative, the one who, who, who merely basking in the presence of God, thinking of themselves as the beloved, that's when they feel closest. And then the intellectual or the conceptualist pathway, the one that, man, when my mind is stimulated, that's when I can really engage in worship. So I hope you guys have, I hope this has been helpful <laughs> in, in your own journey in your personal relationship with God, because the personal part's the key part. It's unique is what I mean by that. Your, the way you relate to God is totally unique, completely different, and he wants that. He likes that. And so he wants you to, to pursue, what does that look like for me? How have you made me? And so that's why we spent all this time in this series. And if you haven't taken the assessment yet, we have the full assessment you can pick one of those up. But the primary goal of this series is that you would understand your sacred, because it's that, because it's you and God, pathway to connect with him. And now that you've learned about that, we've learned about these nine different pathways, um, you can kind of create a profile for yourself. And I would encourage you to do that. Hopefully you've taken notes over this series, maybe different nuggets, ideas, practices that you've kind of collected <laughs> And, and, and maybe you experiment a little bit with those. And, you know, we've learned things like you probably just don't have one. You're probably dominant in several of them. Um, that these spiritual temperaments can evolve over time. It's kind of like a married couple. A married couple doesn't relate to each other and engage the same way in their 50s as they did in their 20s. Not just because things are stale, that's not it. It's because they've changed over time. They've progressed. They've moved through different seasons of their relationship. And that's how it is oftentimes with us and God. And we've seen what activities might be most helpful to us. Um, and also encouraged you guys to try incorporating even just a little piece of one of the other pathways. Don't only do what's easiest for you. Uh, but sometimes try other, other pathways. And then finally, this idea that we need to, and this can be hard, receive the temperament God gave us <laughs> and not just have you know, temperament or pathway envy. You know, we talked about, man, I wish I were like that person. I wish I could relate to God like that. Well, God made you the particular way that he did, and he wants you to relate to him in that way. 
So let me do this. I want us to, um, I want us to read a parable of Jesus in um, Matthew chapter 13. Jesus tells a parable. Um, and let me just say this at first. One question that Jesus gets oftentimes is, why do you always do parables? Why do you speak like this? And, and I think there are a number of reasons that we can give. One thing that he says, in fact, we'll read it in here, is he says, um, those who have eyes can see it and those who have ears can hear it. What he means by that is, is this, that um, a parable reveals your authentic self. It reveals, are you a seeker? Are you a searcher? Or are you a dismisser? You just sort of, eh, that sort of thing. And parables reveal your heart that can't be seen. Here's what I mean by that. A parable you're told, and at first you go, I don't get it. <laughs> okay, what's your response going to be? Do you take a step forward and say, I want to know more? I want to understand that. I want to unravel it. I want to try to get it. Or you just go, eh, it's, I, don't, I don't get it. Do you see the difference there? A parable reveals, do you have ears? Not, not physical ones. <laughs> Meaning, do you long to hear God? Do you have eyes? Do you long to see him? If you step forward after a parable, you have ears and eyes. If you step back after a parable and dismiss it, Jesus says, you don't have eyes. You don't have ears. So it's a, it's a revealing thing. It's really fascinating. So let's read um, Jesus's words in Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 1. He writes this. Um, Matthew writes this. That same day, Jesus went out of the house, sat beside the sea. This is the Sea of Galilee. Great crowds gathered around him. So he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. Immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered. Other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seed fell on good soil and it produced gain some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. And then here's, here, here's his line. <laughs> Do you have ears? Are you going to lean in? Are you going to take a step back? Do you have eyes? <clears throat> and then um, let me jump down to verse 18. He, he gives another parable there, but then a little later, he, he sort of gives this explanation of this agricultural image. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. These are the people who have stepped forward. They do have ears. They want to know. His disciples say, explain it. I don't get it. Help me. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. 
As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word, understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. It's interesting, in the, in the Middle Ages, their, uh, thinkers started speaking of the condition of your soul as a garden. And it came often from these sorts of passages where Jesus says, the work that God is doing in your life, it's, it's like a garden. It's like seeds that are planted that, that have a life expectancy based on conditions of what's going on in the person. And so they spoke of one's spiritual life as um, the way I care for a garden, the way I... T- Does anyone garden in here? Is anyone like really into gardening? Maybe you have a, your own garden or a farm. And, and this, this might connect with you better than others of us where it isn't, but your life is a garden, okay? Um, contrary to Forrest Gump, your life is not like a box of chocolates. Your life is like a... See, a box of chocolates is something that you just passively receive, A garden is something that you actively till. You have to be actively caring for, tending for. It's not a passive thing. And if you've ever had a garden, you know that well. If you've had a garden that lasted more than a few days, you know that well. And the point is, is that your life is like a garden. And God has planted seeds of many different kinds in your soul in unique places, unique seed might be different seed than the person next to you. And it's good seed, and you're tasked to tend to your garden. Suppose sort of, you know, think of an illustration. Think of, think of two women who, who planted gardens at the exact same time, okay? They prepared the ground the exact same way, prepared the soil, planted good seed in there. One woman, however, neglected doing anything more from that point on. The other woman, though, regularly came out. She, you know, she would put up like netting around some of the vegetables that rabbits would tend to have on their menu. You know, she would she would put a stake in the ground next to the uh, kinds of vegetables that grow tall and need to be tethered to something. In some way, she she put cages around the young tomato plants. Okay, fast forward two months, both of these women go out to their garden to harvest. And the one finds rotten tomatoes on the ground, beans whose vines have grown into all of the other uh, plants there. Um, The weeds have choked out the carrots and doesn't really matter because all the rabbits and squirrels have gotten in and mostly eaten them up. And she just pulls like a handful of food out of the ground of her garden and goes inside. And her thought is, Planting that garden wasn't worth it, right? Uh, it, didn't, it didn't yield that much. Uh, the vegetables at the grocery store are much better anyway, and it's more convenient. <laughs> now, her neighbor, the other one who went out there, she harvests like a whole basket full of fruit every other day, and they taste better than the things at the grocery store. And she even figures, you know, I probably saved about 20% of what I normally spend on groceries during these summer months. This is, see, both women planted, and I think this is, we get to some of Jesus's points as he talks about what it means to cultivate your spiritual life. One tended, both planted, one tended. 
the garden. And I've known Christians who have, you know, individual ones, multiple ones, who have made commitments to Christ, right? There's been an initial, like Jesus says, there's a response to the seed with joy. This is awesome. This is so cool. I love it. It's authentic. It's real. It's not fake. It's real. But the influence of the commitment soon became markedly different in these two people's lives. One person began to view their faith as sort of, well, it's convenient. And that's when I do it is when it's convenient. That's when I till it. I'm going to take care of the garden when I have it's convenient in my time. And the other person um, found different ways to engage with scripture, maybe listening or reading or uh, journaling about it, found fresh ways to keep prayer uh, constant in their life, unique ways, maybe thinking about the sacred pathways. And as a result, new character traits developed in the second person. People started noticing, people started coming to them, asking them for counsel and advice, and would you pray for me? Because they recognized fruit. They recognized change in these people. Both of these people planted. Only one of them tended. So here's a question. Um, you might think, well, wait a minute, is, that, is this works salvation? Is that, is that kind of what you're, you know, what you're talking about? Um, God is not opposed to effort. He's opposed to earning. Let me say that again. God is not opposed to effort. He is opposed to earning. Some of us live with this mistaken impression that that faith just needs to be planted, not tended in our lives. You know, almost, we think about it almost like, um, well, becoming a mature Christian is like, I guess if you get to six feet tall, it's either going to happen to you or it's not. (laughs) No, that's that passive, you know, faith is not like a box of chocolates that you just get and, and you'll see what you get. It's like a garden that God plants. And then he says, I want you to tend it. It will require effort for you to tend it. But again, God is not opposed to effort. He is opposed to earning. And so these sacred pathways builds on this imagery that our souls are like a garden. And and studying this thinking about it is, is understanding my spiritual temperament. That's tending to your garden. That's a piece of, as you guys have done that, you are tending to the gardens of your soul. And so some of the first questions that we need to ask then is, um, how am I doing in this regard? How, how are you doing in the regard of tending your soul? Have, have I truly tended the garden of my soul or have I really mostly just planted? I mean, like it's been planted. And if I'm honest, I'm, I'm really not tending to it. And so as we go into the holidays, this is our last week here, as we go into the holidays, as we go into, you're still hopefully being connected with community and, and with church. But I would really ask you to evaluate your current um, devotional component of your life with God, beginning with the time that, that you set aside with God to experience him. Um, what are you doing right now? How's it working? Do a little assessment. How's it working? Scale of one to 10. How, how is your spiritual life, personally, not, not, not your activities, but your, your personal connection with God? How is it doing? Does the thought of another time set aside with God excite you? Does it uh, make you feel guilty? <laughs> what are the thoughts going around here? And, and why do you have those 
thoughts. Do your times of devotion build on one another, meaning they're becoming like better and better and they're building? Or um, does it feel like a burden? Does it feel like a burden? Now, some Christians, you might, you might be in a place where you'd say, you know what, 90% of my spiritual life is, is sort of the standard quiet time. You know, I do 20 minutes of Bible reading. I do 20 minutes of prayer, some worship. And then you say, but, you know, 10%, I would like to kind of supplement with some of this other pathway stuff. Or maybe you're one of these Christians who's saying, man, I need a complete spiritual overhaul. That's okay, too. This is the opportunity to step into that, to lean into that and learn more about that. Now, one of the great benefits, if you remember, we said week one, I said one of the great benefits about learning your particular spiritual pathways, it's going gonna, it's gonna to build in motivation for you to want to do what you want to do, right? Um, all of us do what we want to do at the end of the day. You do what you do because you want to do it. Um, doing things out of mere self-discipline works for a while. Remember we said, but after a while, you're just kind of like, hey, I can only do this so long. If, if there's not desire, right? If you're not experiencing, and here's the key word, pleasure. If you're not experiencing pleasure, it will not last long, I promise you. And so finding ways of when I do this, I experience pleasure, and it's a good thing. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our evening, uh, this evening, talking about is something that we don't say a whole, we say something about it oftentimes negatively. Um, when you hear the word pleasure and the Christian life, what do you immediately think of, I wonder? You think of temptation? You think of danger? You might. Oftentimes that's kind of a default for me. I want to I look at the other side. It is that. Pleasure can be dangerous, Right? Um, depending on what the pleasure is and when and how much and all that sort of thing. I want to look at the other side of the coin and look at the way in which pleasure fuels your relationship with God. We don't talk a whole lot about that. Pleasure, God gave you pleasure to fuel your relationship with him. Let me read. It's, it's kind of long, but I, it's, a, it's a great story, and it, and it captures this concept, if you're following along in your bulletin, kind of the first point on there is pleasure. It is a bulwark against vulnerability. You know what a bulwark is? It's a, um, a barrier, okay, a, um, a, a gate, something along those lines. Pleasure, it's a, a, a bulwark against vulnerability. Listen to the story that uh, Gary Thomas tells he says, I now live in Houston some years back during one of my first visits to that hot city, though. In middle of August, I didn't have a clue what I was, what I was getting into. I was speaking at, to two different churches, one in the morning and one in the evening. So if I wanted to go for a run, I had to do it in the middle of the afternoon. Now, this was August in Houston. Anyone here ever been to Houston? <laughs> And if you've never been there, try to imagine a run inside of a sauna. It is humid. It is hot. Nobody from Houston would run at that time of day in the middle of the afternoon in August. I'm from Seattle, he says, and didn't realize what it was like. So I set out very foolishly. I didn't even carry water with me. I was only going six miles. How many of you were like, only? Oh are you insane? I don't drive six miles most days. I would never carry water in Seattle, he said, to go six miles. So I thought, how thirsty could I get? 
In just 15 minutes, I found out how thirsty I could get. It felt like somebody was blowing a hairdryer directly down my throat. At 20 minutes, I passed a half-empty bottle of Coke lying in a ditch, and I actually paused. And he said, oh, that's gross, but it looks wet, and I need something wet. He said, no, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't fall that far. So I kept running. In about 30 minutes, I thought, this is becoming life-threatening. I saw a woman who was playing with her kids in the front of their house, and I saw that they had a garden hose rolled up. And so I walked up to her, rather embarrassed, and I said, look, I'm sorry to disturb you, but I'm not from around here, and I set out for a run, and I'm just dying of thirst. Would you mind if I just take a drink from the garden hose? She said, no, absolutely, help yourself. She said, so I turned on the hose, and a little embarrassed for being there, I just wanted to get out of there as soon as I could. So I put the hose right up to my mouth and ingested the most bacteria-encrusted, rubbery-tasting hot water you could imagine. Can you just imagine the taste of that? Yeah. Who knows how many bacteria were cooking inside that hose that had been laying in the sun for who knows how long. <clears throat> there was this voice in the back of my head <clears throat> that kept saying, Gary, you are going to regret this. Three hours from now, the gastrointestinal devastation that you're going to experience is going to make you wish you could die. But he said, but here's the thing. I was so thirsty, I honestly didn't care. I thought, you know what? There may be some bad consequences. I'll deal with those consequences when they come. Right now, I've got to deal with my thirst. I need some water. Even if it's polluted, I'm going to drink it. Isn't that a horrible story? Just, I've been thinking about that hose ever since I read it. I'm like, that's just disgusting. But do you see the point he's making on oftentimes we can live thirsty because we're not experiencing authentic, genuine, good pleasure in life. And when we do, we can... Now, when we're back at... I'm sure later when he had a cold bottle of water in his hand later and he was hydrated, and he probably thought, what was I thinking? Why would I stop to look at that? You know, that, the half can of hot pop in the sun and think maybe I should drink it. How stupid of me. Where's your self-discipline, Gary, right? Where's, where's your self-control? And that's one way of approaching the spiritual life, right? It's all about self-control. It's all about um, self-discipline. And that's how we oftentimes deal with temptation, with sin in our life. But what if it would be, maybe there's a better approach. <laughs> what, if, what if the better way is to say, why did I let myself get so thirsty that that happened, that, that something so repugnant like that half bottle of Coke in the hot sun in Houston actually looked good to me. Why was I so tempted? What do you think you will set, what, what do you think will set yourself up for success in the future? And I, I would suggest it's dealing with the root system of the problem. Why we live so thirsty so that we get so thirsty, and then we're on the, on the cusp of temptation, and we, we, we give in. We, we do what we shouldn't do. We step over the line. See, here's a truth about the human heart. Lives devoid of pleasure are vulnerable lives. If your life is void of pleasure, I promise you, you are so vulnerable. If my life is void of pleasure, I am deeply vulnerable 
I have a deeply vulnerable life because I can do the self-control thing only so long. <laughs> it works for a while. Some of us are better at it than others, but eventually I'm going to get so thirsty, I'm going to do something that would be repugnant to me later on when I'm not so thirsty again. This is the same advice. Oftentimes I'll talk to people who, who are single and they will say, should I be dating? And I give them the same advice that I give someone when I say, um, here's the same line of reasoning. Uh, why is it that you don't go grocery shopping when you're hungry? Why is that? Because you'll make, because anything, look, man, those Brussels sprouts look awesome, right? Anything looks great when you're starving, right? Should you be dating someone, single person? Are you satisfied in God? If you're not, you're starving and you're going to make the worst choice in the world. <laughs> and, and it's going to be a repugnant choice. You'll realize that later. You won't in the moment because you're thirsty. And that's how we live our lives at all times and in all things. It's the same reasoning that you're great wisdom that your grandma had when she said, don't go shopping when you're hungry. Am I satisfied in God at, at, a, at, a, at a bare minimum level? Number two, pleasure. As we think about pleasure, I have a phrase there, beloved cosmos versus evil cosmos. Cosmos is the Greek word for world, what, what God has created. Um, when we think about pleasure, the Bible gives some sharp warnings, do not love the world right? Um, and so oftentimes Christians are suspicious of the pleasures of the world. Now that's, you might say, well, what do you mean by that? That's a good question because it's vague, isn't it? Um, let me show you a couple passages here. Think of, um, <clears throat> that's not the passage I wanted. Here we go. Um, 1 John 2.15. John says, do not love the world. That's the word cosmos there. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in, in the world, then he describes it, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Or I think of James, let me read for, for you. These are all out of order here. Um, my goodness, I didn't set this up very well here tonight. Um, well, I'll just, oh, here we go. James 4.4. 4. You adulterous people, the author of James says, do you not know that friendship with the cosmos with the world, is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We oftentimes read some of these and we start thinking, well, God's clearly saying, I shouldn't have friendship with the world. I, I shouldn't associate with it. And so we can almost live this life where we like pull back and I'm just, I, I shouldn't engage in anything. I should just be as, as a recluse from the world as I possibly can. The problem is, what do we do then? You know, first John, who, who said, don't engage with the world, is the same John who in his gospel, John 3.16, said, for God so loved what? The cosmos. <laughs> Wait a minute. He says, don't love the world. And he says, but I love the world so much that 
I did this, or, or we think of other places in, in James where he, he tells us to, to love those in the world. And of course, the point being is this, it's the same word. You can't like go to the Greek and be like, oh, maybe they were using two different, no, it's the same word. But the word is used in different ways. This is, this is one of the reasons why, why sometimes why doing a word study, those of you who love to do Bible study, doing a word study has its limits because you could look it up and man, it's got all these different uses, right? It's used in different ways, in different respects. But the point being is that John is using the same word in different ways. Sometimes the world refers to the world that's hell-bent on running from God, on destroying the things of God. Other times the world is used to refer to just the earth that God created. Other times it refers to the people that God has put there, that he longs to love, that he longs to save. And so um, first, this idea that God's creation is good. Like we have to start with that reality. Remember you go to Genesis 1 and 2, and do you remember the word that's used constantly again and again on each day? God, God declared it good. It's good, it's good, it's good, right? God's world is good. Now the world systems, the ideas which are anti-God, those can be spoken of, yeah, they're really bad, but God's world in and of itself and the, and the pleasures appropriately experienced under his control. They're good. Like we're to celebrate those. We are to enjoy those. And so the question that I want to put before you under this point here is this, do you believe that God created you capable of extreme pleasure? Okay. You know, sight and sound and taste or not even physical pleasures, but like um, other ones as well. Uh, Adrenaline, you know what I mean? That rush that you get when something happens. Uh, intellectual pleasures. I don't know, maybe you like to do Sudoku or crossword puzzles, but completing something, reading a book, some, some challenge that you've had. Uh, laughter, in, you know, like of a friend, of a, something that happens, a joke. Do you think that God created us like so capable with all these neurological pleasure, pleasures just as an obstacle course? You know, he's like, let me see if you can resist every pleasure there is in the world, and then I'll know your piety. I know you love me. <laughs> or did God create us capable of pleasure as a testimony of his goodness? Remember that last song that we sung tonight? The goodness of God. What if, what if he gave us pleasure as a testimony for how good he is, how much he likes to lavish on us. For us to embrace, I think, a biblical view of pleasure, number three, we also have to get rid of an, uh, what we might call an antagonistic view of God. Um, there's, a, there's a book, if, if this is a topic, I would say this, if this is a topic that is a struggle for you, um, you know, you sort of always, I just, I, I feel almost guilty, you know, when I have pleasure. Hopefully that's none of you. <laughs> if, if that is you, let me give you a book recommendation. It's the same author, actually, as this book, Gary Thomas. He wrote a book called Pure Pleasure. Why do Christians feel so bad about feeling good? I love that subtitle. Why do Christians feel so bad about feeling good? But we have to get rid of this view um, that God is antagonistic 
toward us. That's why John 15, let me see if I can find that one here. Um, These are completely out of order. Here we go. John 15. Jesus has this great line. He's speaking to his disciples, his followers, his students. And he says, no longer do I call you servants. Um, For a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. And as we think about um, the language that, that the biblical authors use that we have to believe that, um, that the Lord wants for us to experience good things and to enjoy those things. Listen to uh, Romans. This is like Russian roulette here going through this thing. Boy. Uh, Romans 8.31. I love this passage. Listen to these words of Paul. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, uh, with him graciously give us all things? Or let me read you one psalm. There's this great psalm that I love. Um, it's written by David, King David. And uh, here we go. He says, let those who delight in my righteousness, shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is Yahweh, is God. And look at this word. I love this word. He delights in the welfare of his servant. Or there's a passage in 2 Samuel. And this is David also speaking. And he says this, God brought me out into broad places. That means like open spaces, like nice he, he gave me something I would enjoy and have pleasure. He rescued me. Why? Because he delights in me. God just really delights in me. <laughs> I wonder if you think that thought about yourself ever. That's probably a discipline you need to. God delights in me. You probably need to tell yourself that. God delights in me. Maybe first thing in the morning, God delights in me. God gives good gifts. See, when we don't have this in our mind, we tend to, as we think about the good things we experience, we start to sometimes feel guilty about them. Um, let, me, let me read one more passage to you because I thought it was so good. I just, I just love this. Um, this is Gary Thomas again. And um, he, he's a guy, he's, he goes around and speaks at a lot of churches and in a lot of communities. And he was talking about oftentimes people will come up to him and he wrote this book on pleasure, on God's good pleasure and that sort of thing. And he says, he'll have women, oftentimes young moms, young mothers come up to him. And oftentimes they will say this to him, Gary, is it possible? And this is like a new mom, okay, with like a little baby. And he says, um, Gary, is it possible for me to love my baby more than I love God? And he says, and they're really concerned and they're feeling convicted. He says, and I get it. One, I appreciate their sensitivity before the Lord, but I want to ask them a separate question. And I love this question. I'll say this. Do you believe that God gave you that baby as a test of your piety 
or as a gift from his kindness to let you experience an amazing, almost transcendent relationship. And then he goes on, and I love the way he kind of um, spells this out. He says, let me tell you what's going on inside that mother's life. He says, God is so good of a creator. He's so brilliant a designer and engineer that it was reasonable that he would assume, you know what? This young mother's life is going to be radically changed by this baby. It will forever alter the contours of her body. It will keep her up. She's going to lose a lot of sleep. It will spit up on her. It will do worse things to her than that. Her schedule will be obliterated. And it would be easier to assume that this young mother might come to resent this little human being that has completely disrupted her schedule, her life, her sense of energy, and all of that. And so God, in his brilliance, said, I'm going to create something in her brain. And so when a mother nurses her newborn baby, she's releasing oxytocin into the baby. And the baby is releasing oxytocin into the mom, too. Oxytocin is a neurochemical. And when it's released in the mother's brain, it creates feelings of affection, of warmth, of bonding. And it's brilliant, he says. When a baby is hungry nursing, I don't know, six, seven times a day, that means six, seven, eight times a day, the mother is neurologically melting into her child. <laughs> She's feeling renewed forms of affection. And it makes sense to me, here he says, that God as creator of the world would want moms to be thankful and bonding with their babies rather than resentful of them and what they're doing to their life. And because of the way that God made a mom's brain, she's just not going to get the same pop out of reading 1 Corinthians 13. You know, love is patient, love is kind. <laughs> As she does nursing her child, she's just not. And it's not her fault. It doesn't mean that she's backslidden in her faith. It just means that God in his kindness said, I want you to enjoy a very intimate relationship with this baby. I want you to be engaged in this baby's life. I want you to maintain your affection for this baby. And so it's my desire and my providential design that you experience this and that you have your affection renewed every time you feed this child. And so he says, so enjoy the pleasures, mom, rather than pitting it as a test of your piety. Just accept it as one of God's many good gifts. Don't you love that? I love that picture. And that's talking about a baby, but my question is, what are the other things that God has laid at your feet? Good things. I wonder if you were to make, what are the first three that come to your mind? Something, something good God has laid at your feet. Do you really enjoy it? Do you thank God for it? Do you lean into it and view it as actually as a spiritual practice? <laughs> when I'm enjoying this in recognition of the giver, it's a spiritual practice. We don't tend to often think of that. Number four, the last one, pleasure, enjoying God's good gifts. And I, I probably should have put in there learning to, <laughs> learning to enjoy God's good gifts. I would say evaluate your own life to see if there are places where you have shown contempt for God. What I mean by that is you show contempt for someone if you don't really appreciate something they've given you that's valuable 
in your life. Think about any parents in here. Do you remember, remember when your kids were real little and Christmas time and they would get gifts from aunts and uncles and parents? And how easy was it to know when they weren't that excited about a gift, right? Even if you taught them all and they're like, thank you, this is very nice, right? As opposed to, you know, when they open something and they're just like, and they just have this like visceral reaction and they might jump up and run to them or just, you know, their body shakes or whatever. I don't know about you, but for me, when I've watched my kids, of all the Christmases that we had as a family, I don't remember many things that I got. I do remember the things that I knew my kids were like so excited for, like they'd been waiting for, and they didn't think they were going to get. And I would stop what I was doing when they came to that present. And I would just watch. And I'd just be like, oh, I cannot wait. I cannot wait to see their response. I cannot wait to see them happy. I cannot wait to see them experience the pleasure of getting something they wanted, and I got to give it to them. There's nothing better, right? For you to not enjoy the things that God has given you and to take pleasure in them, it's like that. God wants to see you. I want to see you take pleasure in that. Come on. Don't rob him of the gift of experiencing pleasure in the good things he has laid at your feet. And I think we do tend to show contempt. J.I. Packer, many of you will, will know him, philosopher, uh, theologian rather, passed away I think recently here. J.I. Packer put it this way when thinking about pleasure that we receive from the good things that God has given us. He writes, contempt for pleasure, so far from arguing superior spirituality, is actually the sin of pride. That's an interesting thought. Pleasure is divinely designed to raise our sense of God's goodness, deepen our gratitude to him, and strengthen our hope of richer pleasures to come in the new creation. Isn't that cool? It's to strengthen even our hope of even better things are coming if you enjoy those things now. So I would suggest to you as sort of a last thing, and if, the, if I would have put a number five on there, I would have put this, I didn't, but um, pleasure is a catalyst for worship, or it can be. Pleasure can be a catalyst for your spiritual formation. It can renew your commitment to God. If you, if you lean into this idea of every good thing I get, I'm really thankful for. This is, this is why, I, and I don't do this perfectly. I try to, because I just run past so many things in my life. Um, I try to pray at, at every meal. I don't always. Oftentimes I forget. Oftentimes I'm so starving and hungry, I just dive right in. But I do it as a spiritual practice, not to be seen, but I'm trying to train myself to say thank you. And if that's all it is, even if it's eyes open and just say, thank you for this wonderful Cane's chicken. You know how wonderful Cane's chicken is? It's from heaven. It's absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for this Texas toast and these French fries perfectly fried and this chicken perfectly grilled and this special sauce that's, I can't figure out how they make it. It's wonderful. Thank you for this sweet tea. It's just so good. And I love it. I enjoy it. I, I'm thinking about the fact that I'm taking pleasure in it. And it makes me thankful. And I'm not thankful lots of times. I don't live thankful often. I, I live like people owe me oftentimes. So when I practice the 
this, this discipline of, I'm just going to be thankful, but the only way I'm going to be thankful, oftentimes, is if I experience some pleasure in something. So I have to focus on, this is cool. This is really good. I need to think about it. And then I start, oh, I'm, I'm thankful. Thank you, God. And I live really, really differently. You know, C.S. Lewis, he had a great way of saying how you think about the good things you have. And he said, um, basically, there are three responses um, or you know your heart by three responses to something good that you were given by how you respond when you lose it or when it's taken away. He says the first response is this, that um, you get something, it could, be, it could be a relationship, it could be a job, it could be a vacation or whatever, and it, it doesn't quite meet your needs because nothing will ever meet all your needs. And when it's taken away or whatever, you go, oh, it was just the wrong one. I need to find the better one, the best one. And, and you become a serial repeater and just keep looking for, you become an addict of the thing, whatever that is. Keep looking for another one, another one, another one. Or the person, when it's taken away, when, when they lose it, they become a cynic. They become hardened and they go, ah, you know, that's just, you know, pie in the sky. I'll, I'll kind of stop loving. I'll harden myself. I'll become the critic and the cynic. And he says, or there's the one where it's taken away and, and, and you go, well, that wasn't, that was just a sign pointing to the giver who gave it to me. And so I, I, I can appreciate it for what it is. I can enjoy it while it's there, but I don't put my heart into it like my entire life into it. I just view it as a gift. And it's always pointing beyond itself. It's pointing to the giver, the good God who let me have it for a while, who let me experience it, who said, hey, Brent, I want you to have pleasure in this for a little bit. Go for it, run, enjoy, have pleasure. And that's our God. We have a God who longs for intimacy with you in a unique way that's completely unique to who you are, how he's built you. And one big piece of that pursuant is he says, I want you to pursue me with pleasure, with the things I've given you, with what you have, with the temperament, the spiritual temperament you have. Do you take pleasure in that? Or are you kind of bummed that you're not like someone else's temperament? <laughs> We're going to move into a time of communion tonight. This will be our last one for a while. And what I want to encourage you to do as we take the elements, would you thank God and just say, wow, the pleasure, take pleasure in the fact that you are a daughter of the king. Take pleasure in the fact that you're a son of the king, that you can claim that name, that these elements, as you take them, the reason why you can take them is because you're a son or a daughter of the king of the universe. Do you take pleasure in that? I hope so. So during this next song, like normal, go to one of the stations, uh, grab the elements, go back to your seat, and in your own unique moment with Jesus, okay? It's, right now you have an audience of one. It's just you and God. And just see what he might say to you. Listen, do you have ears to hear? Listen. And see what he might whisper into your heart. And then after you've done that, stand and we'll engage in worship. As we part, um, I, want to, uh, I want to read some words for you, kind of as a benediction. It's a prayer for you. Many of you will know the name Eugene Peterson. He's a pastor, author, many years passed away recently, and his son said, 
my dad for years used to sneak into my bedroom late at night when I was sleeping, and he would, he would say and pray these words over me. He said, God loves you. God is on your side. He's coming after you, and he's relentless. Night after night, he went into his bedroom and said those words. So my prayer, I want to pray these words over you as you go, and that these would live inside your heart, and you would take pleasure in this fact. God loves you. God is on your side. He's coming after you, and he's relentless. May that carry you as you go. Love you guys. Thank you for being here these past 10 weeks and just pushing in and plugging in. I love being with you every week. It's a joy. So have a great rest of your week.